This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com slash podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hi, friends. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. This is a doozy. Buckle up. Okay, I talked to Joshua Porter. He is one of the founding members of the band Showbread. Okay, now if you're an evangelical ex-hardcore kid like me, and you just heard that name for the first time in 10 years, you probably pumped the brakes like, wait, did you just say the band Showbread? Yes, I did. He wrote a book, Death to Deconstruction, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. Uh Uh-oh, are you triggered yet? Are you upset? Are you raging? I'll be honest, when I first saw the title, I'm like, oh my God, here we go. Another book about how deconstructionists just want to sin more and how they hate God. But I will say, This book was actually not all that I thought it was. Yes, there are definitely parts. And Josh tells you this in the intro. You know, no matter who you are, you're going to be offended at some point. And he's right. But there were also a lot of parts where I was like, yes, Josh, you're on the money. So I asked him to come on so we could have a good faith dialogue on where we have a lot of agreement and where we don't see things eye to eye. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation because honestly, I really did. Any chance to try and find people who are willing to engage and wrestle through complicated and, 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 and big topics, I will take. Again, the book is Death to Deconstruction, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. So I hope you enjoyed this interview. And as as always, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for following us. If you want to help us, you can like and subscribe to the podcast or watch it on YouTube, however you get your podcast. If you can give us a rating and review, that'd be so helpful. And last but not least, if you do want to help out the work that we do and help us hold space for thousands of people, we are a nonprofit organization helping people find their way out of the basement of evangelical fundamentalism and somewhere into the house of the Christian tradition. So all donations are tax deductible that are made in the US. You can click on the link in our show notes and you can donate. All right, friends, 
That's all I got for this one. Hey, I would love your feedback on this episode. Honestly, shoot me an email, podcast at thenewevangelicals.com. Shoot me a DM on Instagram. Tell me what you think. Give me your honest thoughts. And I look forward to hearing from you. Catch you later. All right. Well, um, Josh Porter, I was saying before we, we recorded, but I'm going to say it now for the public to hear. It is interesting because, you know, I grew up very in very much in like the underground hardcore Christian scene. I was a drummer, still am a drummer. I still play professionally. And I remember seeing your music videos as uh, as showbread, you know, for me at the time, like, who are these people? They're wearing makeup and they're screaming. And this music video, Math Like a Magazine, is so simplistic, but it works. I'm I'm fascinated. So I became a fan of, of your band, Showbread, early on. Saw you guys kill it at Purple Door. Then, of course, you know, you just move on with your life. And now, thanks to the work that I do and you do, we've come full circle talking about deconstruction in the book that you wrote, Death to Deconstructing. Uh, I'm sorry, Death to Deconstruction, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. So here we are. It's great to have you on. <laughs> thanks, man. You just wait long enough and you never know when you'll come around and have a conversation you didn't think that you would have years later. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, before we get started, I mean, why don't you go ahead and introduce introduce yourself to the audience? I'd love to kind of know your backstory, you know, vaguely, and we'll dive into it via the book. But who are you and why did you end up writing a book, Death to Deconstruction? Well, I, I mean, the long and short of it is that I, you know, I'm a child of the eighties and I grew up in rural deep South Georgia and kind of a conservative, I would describe it as something of a fundamentalist Southern Baptist, um, culture. And this was during the, you know, eighties and nineties. So it was the kind of satanic panic around art and culture. And, uh, you know, we weren't allowed to watch He-Man or the Simpsons and that kind of thing. And, I was, um, by, by wiring and personality, drawn to things that were decidedly outside of the cultural bubble of my, you know, Southern evangelicalism. So I was always drawn to things like art and literature and eventually found um, punk rock, both as a genre of music and kind of an aesthetic and philosophy, and was drawn to that world as well. And the overwhelming pressure from, you know, my upbringing and host culture and to a certain extent, a certain uh, dimension of my, even my family was, well, you know, this is, this is so outside of our world and it's a dangerous and horrifying thing. You need to, you need to rein it in. Um, And I wanted to bring with me the Christianity that I was given, or at least dimensions of the Christianity I was given as at. Uh, as a child, both my parents um, were Christians. I was raised in the church, and I had not yet, even as like a young rebellious teenager, even as someone who was finding and discovering art and culture and punk rock, had not um, committed to you know uh, giving up on the idea of Jesus or even things like the Bible or the church per se. Though I knew that the paradigms that I had been given were not going to work for me long time, long term, or at least that's how I felt at the time. So I embarked on this very long kind of ambiguous and oscillating years long journey of what I would describe as deconstruction or the evolution of faith, however you want to put it, where yeah. I was not sure that I would remain a Christian or, or become something else altogether. I wasn't sure 
that I would ever find my way back into the idea of church and the church. I wasn't sure um, what my interpretation of the Bible would be, or if I would have an interpretation of the Bible, or if it would be something that I would jettison as well, uh, the idea of you know the, the historic understanding of the Bible as scripture. And it, it, you know, I think for most people, it comes and goes in waves. Uh, Few people have a streamlined, linear journey of deconstruction or wrestling with faith as in they like, you know, enter into the process and it's very clean cut and organized and they arrive at a conclusion. Uh, So uh, it was chaotic and it was whirlwind and it kind of went back and forth. And eventually the spoiler alert is that now as, uh, you know, a dude who's nearing 40, um, with a family and who uh, isn't, you know, on the road, every, you know, most months out of the year anymore. I'm a pastor of a small church in the Pacific Northwest, and I have what I would describe as more of, you know, a historic Orthodox um, theology and perspective on things like the scriptures and things like church. Obviously, I'm a pastor, and than I than I ever have, um, even as someone being raised in the church. And as I sat down with, you know, innumerable people over the years, whether it was, you know, through my work making music or writing books or as a pastor, I would trade stories, trade battle stories with anyone who has any experience in things like church or Christianity and certainly in the, you know, the Western world of evangelicalism. Stories about hurt and religious trauma and wrestling with the scriptures and frustration over theology. And the question I kept getting was, how in the world are you still a Christian and why? If, if you have these same touchdown moments that I have, or you have these same frustrations that I have, and, and you're willing to vocalize them with some amount of vulnerability, and I hope sincerity, um, what's different about our stories? And uh, that became the idea for the, the book that eventually became Death to Deconstruction. Yeah, so I got to ask, why not death to evangelical American fundamentalism, and why is it called death to deconstruction? Like, break that down because you and I, from me reading the book, I saw a lot of my own. I mean, I'm I'm in the the Northeast, so definitely a different vibe, but still, I found the bubble, the conservative bubble. Homeschooled for nine years, small private school, fundamentalist upbringing, John MacArthur, and radicalized. Mm-hmm. Like, very, I resonated a lot with you about this counterculture. Uh, like underground punk rock vibe of, of, of like that that 90s, early 2000s uh, Christian world that I was fully immersed in. So I'm on board with all of that. And so so I, I get a lot of the problems. I have a, a similar journey of, I guess you can call it deconstruction. I mean, I started this account, the New Evangelicals, I do now full time. But why the name Death to Deconstruction instead of you know, what I would call the book, Death to American Fundamentalism? That's a great question. Honestly, it's probably the question about the book. You know, I, I and I didn't name the book Death to Deconstruction, oblivious to what would inevitably be pushback over the name. Um, and honestly, this is a I've discovered that this is kind of an unsatisfying answer for for some people, maybe not everyone, but I thought it was interesting aesthetically. You know, I still think of myself primarily as a, a novelist. I've written way more novels than I've written nonfiction. This is my first foray into the world of Christian nonfiction, meaning, you know, it's a book about theology and the Bible and following Jesus, uh, explicitly so. And uh, I thought personally that the the thrust of the book, if you you know, and you've you've seen it, there all that stuff about death to evangelical fundamentalism is in the book, I would argue. Um, yeah. And it's pretty detailed and pretty explicit. 
And it's pretty, uh, at times, um, edgy sounds like such a lame word to use, but I, I don't mean, I just don't think it's a very soft approach. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty pointed about um, my own upbringing, my own story, and the ways that I was hurt and the problems that I have with um, what we now call evangelicalism, which I don't, you know, I don't, uh, or, or the kind of politicization of evangelicalism. Um, that's all in the book, but to me, calling the book Death to Evangelicalism felt a little trite. It felt like there's like a million books like that. Um, <laughs> it, it honestly didn't feel, and this is, again, my own personal aesthetic, it didn't feel provocative. It felt like, well, duh. You know, it felt like that's, of course, what that guy would write. Um, but as I wrote the book, it didn't have, you know, the name yet. And the publishers were pushing me to change the name. Even while I was trying to sell the book, the pub- different publishers were like, can we call it something else um, when that was the working title? And the more I wrote, the more I uncovered what I thought was inter- interesting dimensions of the word deconstruction. You know, from the outset, I think in like chapter one or something, there's a, I define deconstruction for the purposes of the book as like the kind of spiritual pop culture terminology that means breaking down one's faith in order to build some new spirituality. Um, And I acknowledge that what people often call quote unquote good deconstruction, I don't have an issue with, I just call it something else. I use the, you know, terms like spiritual formation or the evolution of faith, I think is the term I use in the book. Um, so a lot of people inevitably and right away before the book even came out were like, what the heck? Deconstruction is a good thing. And these were people who probably were semi in line with what I argue in the book. And I was like, yeah, I get it. I just use a different term. And for me, the word deconstruction takes on um, kind of three different meanings throughout the course of the book. There's the one that I unpacked that's kind of the stilted uh, you know, clinical definition, if you like, in the beginning. Um, but then eventually it becomes something a little more uh, esoteric sounding. I mean, part of the, the thread that runs through the book is my own uh, wrestling with whether or not I wanted to be alive as a person. Um, and that, yeah. to me, becomes the, the ultimate uh, story of my deconstruction personally. And it continued on after I had long resolved to be a Christian, long resolved to be Orthodox or be a pastor or anything like that. And I think that it's something much bigger than just the outlines that I spend most of the book or the, you know, the problems I spend most of the book wrestling with things like, you know, the Bible and the problem of evil. It becomes about, you know, the existential crisis itself and whether or not somebody actually wants to live. And so, when I arrived at the, you know, the, the manuscript or however the process works, um, I thought, man, deconstruction <laughs> yeah, right. to me uh, in this book, in the context of this story, and there is a narrative, it kind of moves from point A to point B, the narratively becomes something much more than what is described at the outset of the book. And I use the, the phrasing from the book, you know, via Richard Matheson and I Am Legend, you know, it becomes kind of the climactic finale of the book as well, if you like. And I, I just like the idea of titles that provoke. I know that that sounds like cheap or, or um, kind of offending for offense's sake or, or for the sake of offending. But I kind of have always, I mean, you may not, people may not like that, but I've always done that. You know, I like in the band Showbread, <laughs> yeah. we, we used lyricism and themes and names of song. We called things... We get, I like interesting titles. I like terse, provocative titles that make the listener or make the reader or make the viewer kind of recoil and then go, what the heck is that about? And then it almost becomes like a challenge to 
well, if you want to know, you have to listen to the song. Or if you want to know, you have to dig deeper. If you want to know, you have to read the book. So there's a chorus of people online who are up in arms with me about the book that haven't actually read the book. And that's fine. Um, you know, I expected that there would be pushback over the title. I just like the idea. I think it's a bigger reward for it to take on something bigger if you do the work of reading and wrestling with it yourself. And, and you know, we should know because deconstruction is, in essence, a, a long-term wrestling with complex ideas. I just put some of them in, you know, like across the span of some 200 pages. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. The title is what got me to buy the book. You're right. If you wrote a book, Death to Evangelicalism, I'd be like, okay, I have a bunch of those already. Like, I'm already on board for like rethinking that. But Death to Deconstruction, I'm like, whoa, now I feel attacked because I have people in my <laughs> circles who are rethinking their faith, right? And who are like, you know, they use the term, but they want to be faithful to Jesus. And here's this guy who I used to listen to writing a book called Death to Deconstruction. Like, oh my God, he, he's a fundamentalist again. So I got to read it. So I did. I read the book, right? And it was, it, I got to be honest, like it was, it was super, it, you say in the beginning of the book, like, listen, no one is safe, you know, in this book. And I am like, yeah, you're right. Um, I'll, I, I was cheering you on when you're like, yeah, evangelical fundamentalism is so problematic. But then there were some things, we'll get into them a little bit later on, where I'm like, you know, I'm not sure if I would agree with that take on the term deconstructionist and insert like this paragraph here, right? Sure. So I, I I appreciate that because I think we have to be able to read these kinds of books and wrestle in these tensions. So let's start with some of the low-hanging fruit. Then, then we're going to move into some of the more, maybe things that, 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 that we wouldn't see eye to eye on, or maybe when you explain them, we will. I don't know. So yeah. in the book, it's, it's evident that, you know, how you grew up really shaped a lot of your theology at one point kind of I use the term it radicalized me um and and I'm I argue I'm still radical today I just keep getting more and more radical which is why I reject so much of my fundamentalism but for for you like and you say this in the book but maybe you can kind of give us a short version what were like maybe some of the moments for you where you're like you know this this evangelical heritage I I received uh, there's something deeper going on that I don't know if it's really what I thought I signed up for well, honestly, this sounds like the lazy answer, but the one of the reasons that I outlined some of my um, core issues with uh, not just evangelicalism, but questions about Christianity in general um, were what I call the five great predators in the book, or, or and they've been the basis of many conversations that I've had with people over the years who are either in the process of deconstructing or have deconstructed or are somewhere, you know, on the precipice of that process. And so for me, they were things like the problem of evil was huge. I was given um, as part of the, you know, my Southern Baptist heritage, what I would describe as, and I, I really don't mean to throw any one person or church, and this is not in any sense a, a statement on the Southern Baptist denomination or, you know, convention, but in my own little tiny hometown church, the, I was given kind of, a lazy reformed theology, meaning it emphasized God's unilateral control over everything, but without a lot of um, theological nuance to work that out. So there was a lot of God's in control and, you know, like God ordained this, that, that kind of language that comes up still in Calvinism. Uh, but, you know, when I was... Um, absolutely put off by those paradigms and genuinely wanting to understand that perspective, I was met with a lot of, you know, like, well, you're like Job and who are you to question God and that kind of thing. And um, so it, 
honestly, part of my theological journey, like that became one of my obsessions is the problem of evil and providence and reading theologians who kind of specialize in those fields. I learned that. Um, I, obviously it's evident from the book that I'm not a Calvinist. Uh, and so I, I never came back around to that, that providential paradigm that I was given. Um, but I learned that what, yeah. what I received was kind of a half baked Calvinist theology. It wasn't what I think, um, intelligent, educated reformed thinkers would describe as quote unquote, good Calvinist theology, if that makes any sense. And the, the other big thing for mm-hmm. me was biblical mm-hmm. illiteracy, um, meaning that, from an early age, and not because, oh man, I was really on to something and I'm so smart, but it seemed to me like the Bible was, at least to some extent, a work of art. It seemed to me undeniable that there was like abstract art in the Bible and that there were all these um, strange, surreal passages and that there was, po- obviously, there's like a tremendous amount of poetry. There's more poetry than discourse in the Bible and that most of the Bible's a story, all that stuff. And it really confused me that the Bible I w- with with which I was presented was read more like an encyclopedia, you know, or or like a a dictionary of moral truth, inarguable moral truth, the, the entirely literal linear handbook for ethics in the modern world. And then right. this was even at a point where I wasn't necessarily pushing back on the idea that the Bible had ethical things to teach, you know, like I, I, I had yet to plumb the depths of like moral problems with the scriptures. It was more like, I just don't understand how to read this. If it's right. not a poem, I don't understand how to, how, I don't understand how a poem is authoritative. Can someone help me understand that? I wasn't even necessarily saying I deny that this is true. I just, I need a better paradigm. And again, the, the kind of half-baked theology that came back to me was, look, you're, you're not allowed to ask these questions because it sounds like you don't have enough faith. It sounds like um, you, you're, you're journeying too far in a dangerous direction. And um, the other thing for me was the politicization of Christianity. Um, I, you know, even before I had developed my theology of um, you know, the church and politics and the church and the state, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, it did not sit well with me as, you know, a young adult, uh, someone coming of age in post 9-11 America with the evangelical bloodlust and, you know, the warmongering. And um, that was something, obviously this is tale as old as time, but that was for me when it became something real and lived in, journeying around, you know, like the South and finding t-shirts in my local gas station with Osama bin Laden and a bullet hole in his head and like a Bible yeah. verse on it or some such thing. And something about it, even though I had not, you know, I had a really undercooked um, theological take on things and was not educated in the scriptures or anything like that. I just, something was like, this doesn't, <laughs> I don't see, you know, even in simplistic terms, the Sermon on the Mount represented by the rhetoric that's coming from what felt to me like the overwhelming majority of the church. And it was the kind of, um, the, the, the group of people that had a megaphone at the time, the people that were really outspoken and really vocal. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, I, I grew up on, on, on a steady diet of talk radio. I mean, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, <laughs> Mark Levin, Michael Savage, you name it. I listened to yeah. it I grew up in construction. And so I remember 9-11. I remember the response after. I remember Sean Hannity day in and day out talking about radical Islam and how it's in America. 
And and you're right. I mean, I'm not sure about you, but I I didn't have the the language I have now. But I just knew like, huh. I mean, okay. I I all I know is what they're saying, so I get it. But also. I'm tr- I'm 13 trying to be committed to Jesus or fit 14 and like I'm just reading the sermon on the mount like like they're telling me and I'm seeing like a dichotomy between what Jesus is saying about like loving your enemies and then what my church is saying like well there's always exceptions like this is evil on a different level so we kind of have to bomb them yeah but, okay I'm not saying yeah. it's not complicated but like I, I am I the crazy one because you again you radicalized me you taught me that the most important thing is following Jesus so I'm trying to do that but now this issue is happening and then I'm not sure about you, but I discovered Shane Claiborne and I read Irresistible mm-hmm. Revolution. I'm like, oh my God, I never even considered this before to be a social aspect. So I think a lot of people who are listening to you talk, Josh, are like, yeah, like I, I totally agree. Now, my, for me, one of my biggest moments of like, of I call it like a, a stench when, when the stench got just un bearable because i was i was a proficient drummer in evangelical spaces for a lot of years um and like i love that church i love bands and stuff oh dude in years ableton the whole nine like i was nice. in it I, I still play professionally uh to this day i mean i'm using my molds now I, I i love it i was nerding out you know programming time code i had the gopro you get the point so I, yep. i'm firmly seated in those spaces right i'm I, drumming is like my identity I'm, I'm, I'm getting good at it and when trump happened in 2016 it was it was the moment for me where I'm like, okay, something is so stinky. I don't know what it is, but I I can't deny anymore what I'm witnessing. And the, the analogy I, or the example I always cite to people is. I grew up in this space that gave me this very black and white sexual ethic of like, listen, Tim, it's this simple. Don't touch yourself or anyone else sexually until you're married. Like, there you go. If you can do that till you're married, God will be happy. And if you mess up, well, there's grace, but maybe you can't serve in the worship team anymore, right? That's kind of the vibe. Okay. And then I'm watching those same people who raised me on such a, a strong, strict sexual ethic Tell me, well, Tim, how can you not vote for the guy on the cover of Playboy who's cheated on his wife? You know, who has who has bragged on a hot mic that he that sexually assaulting women is like no big deal because Tim, there are bigger values in life than what he does privately. I'm like, uh, again, guys, you taught me this. I'm just holding yeah. you to the standard you're holding me to, but now I'm the crazy one. So I'm kind of curious for you. In 2016, were you? still kind of like walking out of those spaces or were you already gone? And Trump was just like, yeah, of course I knew this was going to happen. How did you view the whole Trump situation? Um, I was uh, working at a church in 2016. I was already a pastor or kind of on the, on track to be a pastor working um, on staff at a church. And um, no, yeah, I believe that. Yeah. I remember I, I made, I made it, I had to make, or I chose to make a statement about the results of the 2016 election on a Sunday night. Um, something that I had wrote and prepared and that, you know, inevitably a handful of people left our church because of. And um, I, I guess that there's two ways of describing my reaction. One is that it is exactly like yours. Uh, I think that there's a sense of inevitable outrage and deep discouragement. Um, and But then honestly, for me personally, because I had obsessed over from sometime like circa 2010 to 2015 or something like that, um, a, a theology of church and state and working out what I believed. And it, honestly, a lot like you, Tim, like I, you know, it, 
brought on by the publication of books like Irresistible Revolution and Jesus for President, and then yep. going into folks like Greg Boyd and Yoder and, mm-hmm. you know, like even Christian anarchist writings and, and that whole world. Um, sure. And then developing, you know, what now I would describe as kind of a um, an Anabaptist theology of church and state, which is what I outline in the book. And um, I was at a place where my conviction of the inherent um, corruption of the empire was so um, settled that part of me, though I was like everyone, or, or I shouldn't, I don't want to speak with too broad a brush because obviously that wasn't the case that everyone was grieved. Like many people, I was grieved yeah. and discouraged and bummed. And you have to, again, look at the ugly face of what masquerades as Christianity in America and yeah. do the whole like, you know, and I'm a pastor now, so I'm trying to teach people like, look, this is this is how you follow Jesus. This is how I believe you follow Jesus. And it's not this thing. And that's like going upstream, you know, it's not just teaching people a new concept. It's a concept that's contrary to everything that they've been taught for years and years and yeah. years. And yeah. you and I know that that's a difficult thing to untangle, you know, so you're, you're trying yes. to have empathy for people and treat them with kindness and also um, uh, uncompromisingly commit to what I believe is the the authentic way of Jesus. So, you know, I, there was a lot of despair in our church about like, oh my God, how are we going to still be Christians over this? And there was a lot of like, what the heck? You guys are crazy. This is the best right. news ever. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but I'm in the Pacific Northwest. I'm 10 minutes from Portland, Oregon. I lived in Portland for a decade. That's that my church was planted from a church in Portland. So the enthusiasm for Trump was the extreme minority in my case. In fact, when I gave that statement that made the minority of our church leave, um, which didn't, it didn't even explicitly condemn a pol- politician or a political party. I just read from the Sermon on the Mount and I talked about a theology of church and state and wh- what it means to really follow Jesus. And everyone read between the lines. <laughs> and some people were like, hooray. And other people were like, man, forget this guy. Let's get out of here. I mean, they actually got up and walked out. Wow. Um, or, you know, at, during that time or shortly after he was elected, our church. Um, facilitated an initiative in Vancouver and in Portland that worked with uh, refugee care. So we helped fund, uh, you know, a nonprofit that brings refugees into housing and helps get them food and on their feet and find work so that they can get plugged into community in Portland and Vancouver. And there was a there was a moment where the kind of refugee crisis had reached this penultimate state, and they were being banned, or they weren't going to be allowed into the country. And there was now there was all this rhetoric around around refugees and refugee care, and we that's something we've been talking about for months and months long before this guy was even elected president. And I got up on a Sunday and I read a lamentation from from the Bible that talked about God's love for the the foreigner, the refugee, the poor. And then I talked about our concern for uh, the refugee initiative and how we participate that and to pray that um, we would continue to be able to do that. And now people are leaving over this. Like I, I didn't mention Trump. I didn't mention the policy wow. uh, with any kind of specificity. But again, that's a minority of our church. And you know, at the same time, I'm reading my statement about the results of the election Literally, there's a riot unfolding down the street in Portland over the results of the election. So the the primary, um, you know, uh, voice in my area is the the anti-Trump voice. The minority is the pro-Trump voice, and I think you know, consistently taught uh, the the way of Jesus will in- eventually provoke both sides. It just depends on how it sounds in a given context, you know. 
And now we have reached our first point of potential contention. I've done <gasps> it. I've buttered you up the whole time. I've, I've, I've softballed you, you with great questions. Here we go. <laughs> okay. So I, yes, I'm with you on, on so much of this. Um, and then we get to your book, right? So here's, here's my question for you. And here's where I, here's how I think about it now, because well, let me just read one of the excerpts from the book. This is page uh, 151. So in the book, and uh, uh, granted, this is not in the full context of the chapter. You can explain all that, you know. but this is one of the excerpts. You say, these angry reactionary deconstructionists insist that God needs saving from the elephants, and the only way to rescue him is to send in the donkeys. Everyone is saying the same thing, really. It's not that they think Christianity has been corrupted by the politics of the empire. It's just been corrupted by the wrong side. Who the heck is the wrong side? Depends on who you ask. I even wrote, I had, I highlighted it and I went, I think I disagree here and, and made a little note. Uh, um, uh, a little note. And let me kind of, you know, posit my thoughts on, on that particular paragraph and you can sure. respond to it. I completely understand that having a political allegiance to a party or person over the way of Jesus is, is I would argue, an, an really an antichrist behavior at at its root, okay? Um, however, in our current cultural moment, we are living in a time that I would argue is unprecedented regarding the rise of particularly white Christian nationalism taking seat in far-right politics that honestly were, were one of the major ingredients that contributed to our capital building being stormed, right? So I have that one side. Then there's this dichotomy I live in of this other side of like, okay, well, the other side is, is voting for Joe Biden. Now, the difference though that I think I would say is that a lot of the people I engage with, not every deconstructionist, but the people I engage with who would say I've deconstructed are like, listen, I, I, I don't have a Joe Biden flag on the back of my truck. I don't think four more years of Joe Biden. However, I do think that Joe Biden for living in a country that is built on empire with a, with a war machine that, that Joe Biden supports, which is problematic. I do think he's probably a safer bet for most people than Trump, who is steeped in a white nationalist outlook that really aims to maintain power and control in the name of Christian nationalism, right? So, so I hear what you're saying, but I just think in our current cultural moment, if I had to choose between Joe Biden or Trump, I think we can survive Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden at least recognizes that things like racism still exist and that, you know, minority groups are still being targeted by, by, by white supremacist groups in the name of Jesus. Trump, I think, fuels all of that. And so that's why I kind of get a little hesitant to be like, yeah, man, both sides, because they're not really in our current moment, I feel like completely equivalent. What are your thoughts to that? Well, first, I just want to say, man, Tim, how gracious and accommodating you are in your <laughs> disagreement. I thought that I was like, oh man, he's about to shred me. But you even wrote in your book, I think I might disagree. <laughs> That's so refreshing. What a kind and uh, humble outlook. I Honestly, I just really appreciate it. I'm over here smiling because I was like, man, this guy's so nice, even though he might not agree with what I'm saying. Um, I, and honestly, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with anything that you just said. I realize that the book um, is making, a, you know, it's a chapter of the book, and I don't mean to like say, oh, I just can't write an encyclopedia, so therefore I sweep any any kind of contradictions under the rug. That's not the case. Um, but I think that if I'm hearing you right, and what you're saying is that you're recognizing that. Uh, allegiance to a political party or a politician over the way of Jesus is, um, in your words, anti-Christ or, um, you know, I describe it as political idolatry in the book. 
Um, and it, and it is uh, a compromise of allegiances. Uh, if you're saying that, and then you're saying that, um, you also think that there are times in the evolving narrative of the empire. Let's go with this current one at the moment in which the lesser of two evils, it makes more pragmatic sense. uh, Big, big picture, right? I, 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 I mean, we can say lesser of two evils because I, I definitely think that there are major problems, you know, with, with the Democrat party for sure. But I would say that I think if we're, and this is, I know these are really ambiguous terms, but if we're looking at like the left, I find more people trying to do the work of liberation and trying to advocate for their neighbor. Um, I'm thinking about like James, Clo- uh, James Cohn here, black liberation theology. You know, I'm kind of drawing from that. Like I, I, I'm more, I find when Jesus says he's come to bring liberation to the poor and the oppressed, I'm like, I want to take that seriously. And I, mm-hmm. I do find more people in those left-wing spaces at least trying to do something like that but that being said on the democrat republican political side yes i I would say you know lesser of two evils in this current moment yeah yeah totally yeah and i and i agree and i think that um i use that language lesser of two evils just as an 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 acknowledgement of the inevitability that that no system or party is going to perfectly adhere to the way of Jesus because they're structured differently and the, you know, the empire is not the same thing as the church. So, I mean, I like the way that you put it. You're like, you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of, um, even, uh, enthusiasm for military violence in the democratic party that is, you know, like explicitly contrary to the way of Jesus. So in that, at least in that sense, and you could pick in these, okay, this thing is more like Jesus than that. And this thing is more like, but on the whole, no political party and no politician is going to represent the kingdom of God because the kingdoms of the world don't operate the way that the kingdom of God works. I think it's perfectly appropriate personally. And I say this as someone who has, you know, over the years identified as a Christian anarchist or an Anabaptist or what, however you want to describe it. It just depends on which sounds cooler at the time. (laughs) Um, I, I, I think that it's perfectly appropriate and inevitable that authentic disciples of Jesus, sincere disciples of Jesus who, and by that, I don't mean like, oh, they're the true Christian. I'd mean like people who are honestly wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus faithfully and trying to figure out how the heck one operates as a citizen of the world, um, that they're going to have opinions about the way that the empire should or shouldn't do things, that they think that some things are not just like, oh, I prefer it if this street had a stop sign, but that there are moral implications that could have disastrous ramifications and want to vocalize their opinion according to those lines. The danger, I think, personally, for me and for my theology and where what I argue in the book is assigning the term Christian to a vote or to a politician or to a political yeah. party. I think if you have the time and space to do really nuanced with work with like, look, it's not everything that it's supposed to be, but these things are important. I feel that they're most important right now. I am going to um, vote along those lines or argue along those lines, but I understand that no vote will encapsulate like what it means to you know belong to the kingdom of God, however you want to put it. Um, I don't disagree with that. I But I, you know, I think that, the thing that I recognized as someone who grew up in a majority right, you know, like hard right culture and then migrated to what is undeniably like the kind of the quintessential left uh, like culture. And I, and I would argue personally, both extremes to a fundamentalist degree. Like there's right wing fundamentalism in the rural deep South of my upbringing. There's certainly left wing fundamentalism in the world of the Pacific Northwest and in a place like Portland Metro area. Um, 
that prying away the idea of, you know, like an essentially Christian way to vote or to argue politics from the person who is politically idolatrous or who has um, allegiance to a, po- a politician or a political party over and against the way of Jesus is a very difficult thing to do. I, when I came out here talking all my Christian anarchist stuff that I learned in Georgia, everybody's like, yeah, who cares? That's a given. Like it wasn't controversial. No one, but then the deeper the conversation goes, someone eventually goes, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, like, uh, and that's why in the book, I love to use the example of Garth Brooks and his, uh, you know, yeah. Sanders jersey that Garth Brooks posted a picture on the internet of himself wearing a jersey that said Sanders. And some people were like, oh my God, Garth Brooks loves Bernie. And they were so thrilled. And other people were like, I'm never listening to this guy again. He just put on a jersey. It wasn't even for Bernie Sanders. Right. It's the it's the Rorschach test that brings out whatever's in there. You know, you know what I mean? And I think that political idolatry is a problem for the church on both sides of the spectrum. So, okay. So I think I, I, I honestly do hear a lot of what you're saying and I have thought about this at length and I do wrestle with my own paradoxes. You know, I do wrestle with like, how do I be a good neighbor to people who don't even believe the same yeah. theological paradigms or even religious traditions that I believe we live in a pluralistic society. We are governed by a constitution, not a Bible, which honestly, thank God for a lot of reasons. So, so, okay. So, so there, there's that element of just like our society, right? Like we're just, this is the way it works and how do we navigate that? And then you have this, you know, this as a, as a Christian, how do I, how do I do my best to maintain allegiance to Jesus as faithfully as possible while also realizing that as long as we live on this side of heaven, so to speak, right, there's going to be some level of compromise that we just are in. I mean, I'm not a big fan of capitalism and the fact that Amazon exploits its employees, but sometimes I need overnight diapers or else my kid will shit the bed, you know? And so I buy a pack of diapers and I'm like, ah, you know, I feel the tension there, right? So, so my question though is this, right? So let's just kind of hone here on this politic thing for a minute because I understand the both sides thing, but I also kind of don't. And, and here's what I mean. In, in my both experience as a child and now, and I should preface and let you know that I follow right-wing spaces incredibly closely. I even spent four days at Charlie Kirk Turning Point America's America Fest in Arizona watching Ali Stuckey, Matt. Well, I mean, I was there with 11,000 people for four days straight. So I really try and, and really wow, immerse myself. What's up? What a trooper. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I was I was bearing my cross for everyone else in our community. <laughs> That's what I tell them. But I, I say that because I really do try and, 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 and have some kind of data to back up my perspective, right? I I don't see th- uh, to nearly, nearly the same degree, we can say, of this combination of to be a Christian is to only vote for the Democrat. Meaning this, at Turning Point USA's America Fest, there was a podcast that came out with this guy named Johnny Root, who's one of their commentators, and this guy named Virgil Walker. He's part of the G3 conference. And he, Virgil Walker literally says, you cannot be Democrat and be a Christian. You cannot vote pro-choice and be a Christian. That's it. Line drawn, you're either in or out. I have never in my life heard that from a mainline Protestant, you know, uh, liberal theologian in my life. And, And what is frustrating to me is that I think if someone really takes a hard look at what's happening in our current culture moment politically, I see this continuation of this right wing 
the uh, um, political ideology that has has given people a lens that first sees that and then sees how they read the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and they're convinced though that somehow they're standing on God's objective moral word of the Bible. I don't see to nearly the same degree in institution, in funding, in power, none of that on the left. But I do see people who are like, okay, if Jesus wants me to love my neighbor, advocating for affordable health care could be a good way of, of doing that, you know, because we live in a system uh-huh. where that's not a, a thing afforded to most people. So so help me from your vantage point. I'm sure you've thought about this stuff. How do you break that down? Because, yeah, I get the both sides things, but also I'm not really convinced, frankly. Right. Yeah. No, I get it. I The two things I would say to that is that one, you know, I'm inevitably a product of my environment. So I spent many, many years of my creative life commenting on right-wing conservative evangelicalism. Like most of Showbread's theological critiques are of the right-leaning church. Like I wrote an entire novel about uh, white supremacy and white nationalism. You know, we have uh, not one, but two concept records about um, political idolatry on the right. Um, And that was all before I moved to the Pacific Northwest. Now you get to the Pacific Northwest and the kinds of sermons that I do um, here, uh, mostly are like, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, you know, but if I were to do them in Georgia, I think that they would chase me out of the room before I finished talking. And so I've had to learn to repurpose my language to Mm -hmm. the extent that I can actually speak in a meaningful way, um, with conviction to my audience. And that goes over to the second thing I would say about that is that the target audience of death to deconstruction is the kind of person, and I say it's not, I don't mean that in a marketing sense. I mean, the kind of person I would like to have a conversation with is the person who has either been participated in deconstruction, is considering deconstruction, has deconstructed, or is just in that conversation to some degree. And I think, in, and this is really broad strokes talk, really generally sure. speaking, um, that the kind of mass migration out of the old evangelicalism. <laughs> you like that? I love uh, it. <laughs> uh, out of the whole, like, uh, you know, like, I think that to my audience and the people that I would like to have a conversation with, the stuff in the book that is contrary white national, or, you know, like Christian nationalism and white supremacy, they're like, duh, 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 duh. Yeah, I already believe all those things. Yeah. The part that is going to hit them and be like, huh, I, you know, I don't know how I feel about that. And I, I would need that to, to consider that more is the, to then ask, does that same allegiance to empire over the way of Jesus permeate the other side of the aisle? Um, whereas many people, and I totally get it because I'm that person, were given such a sad, infirmed, politically charged Christianity that we wanted to, and not even like for petty, immature reasons, we wanted to go somewhere else. And, you know, we we're like, we're looking like that looks more like Jesus than your uh, toxicity, than your corruption does. And so a lot of us kind of ran full tilt to the other side of the socio-political spectrum, even if it was half-baked and undercooked, you know, like if, even sure. if we didn't think through the ramifications. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, and we love to go like, oh man, you know, say provocative things like, uh, you know, everybody's mad about socialism, but socialism sounds a lot more like acts than, you know, that kind of language <laughs> oh, and yeah. conversation. And to me, I witnessed peers of mine and people like literal peers of mine, people I know, and just kind of at, from the vantage I have, narrow though it may be as an artist and an author and a pastor, um, that there became a, 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 
uh, much needed, not just pushback, but denouncement um, in a certain group of young people trying to figure out how to follow Jesus of, you know, like the religious right, of the fundamentalism of the religious right, of white supremacy and Christian nationalism, stuff that you never thought you would actually even have to say out loud that apparently needs much more than saying out loud. It needs entire books and sermons and well-thought arguments, but we're saying them. And now I want to have continue to have that conversation, but also shine the light on people like me as well, who the temptation is not to, I, nothing in me wants to return to, you know, the right wing of the socio-political spectrum. Nothing in me is interested in Christian nationalism. I've, oh my God, spent so many years denouncing it and critiquing it. Um, but I also don't want to create a kind of happy, comfortable Christianity that lets us all off the hook uh, my audience and my church into being like, nah, we figured it out because we're not them. Um, and to say like, if we're going to follow Jesus consistently, I think that, and not just in the world of politics, but I think that it will put us um, eventually and inevitably at odds with kind of every cultural narrative in, to some degree. You know, there will be some sense if I want to follow Jesus, not this. I want to follow Jesus, not this. And I don't mean that as kind of us versus them. I just mean that the way of Jesus is so different than everything else that I'm interested in a Christianity that's convicting and that's provocative. And I, I want to be provoked as well. So I'm just trying to spread the wealth of, of controversy. <laughs> No, I mean, hey, listen, I'm all about controversy. All I have to do is look at my page or listen to one of our podcasts. You know, like we, I, I have no problem poking the bear, and I think ultimately it needs to in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, you know, again, I, I think a lot of our audience tracks with this, and, and I say often uh, in our spaces, like we don't want to become fundamentalists all over again, right? Because you can right, very yeah. easily arrive at this different kind of enlightenment where it's like, oh, those dumb. Christian nationalists, unlike me, uh, you know, I, I have arrived. And also we really do our best not to dehumanize people that we really don't like. So I think that that is part of that, to, to borrow some Bible project language, that cycle of chaos that we're trying to not enter into, right? Yes, and so well I, I'm with you on all of that, uh, for sure. I think what I'm, what I think one of my biggest struggles with the book, right? Because again, I, I think the book is, by the way, audience, it is worth reading. It's worth reading the book. I really enjoyed it. It's a very readable book. I mean that in a good way. Is that sometimes I think some of the way you talked about the term deconstructions, I felt like was like, well, um, you know, maybe some, but you know, I, I, I say that deconstruction is really an explosion. People are going in all different directions. Some people walk right out the door of the Christian tradition and want nothing to do with it, to which I say, fine, like God's big enough. It's not my job. If they want to walk out and they find a life that is, you know, healing, I wish them the best, you know? But then there are people like me, and I think people in our in our space are like, okay, we're out of the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. And for the first time, we're in this first room of like level one, and we're like, oh shit this tradition is huge, like way bigger than I thought. We got some, who are Eastern Orthodox people? There's an Ethiopian Orthodox church, what, right? <laughs> so I think a lot of people are like in this space where they've experienced legitimate abuse and trauma, like legitimate abuse, right, in their church. They walked up the steps and they're just overwhelmed. They're like, you know, I just need time to sort some of this stuff out before I start parking in new rooms saying, yeah, this is the room that I think best reflects Christ. And I felt like sometimes in the book, there were just some like paragraphs that I felt like, well, maybe we weren't like the, like, like, like the most fair 
portrayal of of the deep and as you know painful and sometimes scary work of of losing a fundamentalism and just trying to 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 gain your bearings and realizing like oh my god i i'm just this house is huge it will take me a lot of years before i can i can start Thinking about this, I think one example of that, and again, we have a common connection here, is the Bible Project. I would argue that Tim Mackey and John Collins legitimately saved my faith. I found their podcast years ago, and the first episode I ever listened to was the God or Gods series. And I was like, wait, multiple gods in the Bible? What are we talking about here? Like, what is going on? And, and that whole series blew my mind on how complicated this sacred and beautiful collection of books that we have called the Bible is, right? And so that I'm still thinking through how or what I'm supposed to do with the Bible. <laughs> there are days where I'm like, okay, is this prescriptive, descriptive? What do I do with it, right? And I think a lot of people are there. Like this is new for them. They're a year in, two years in, trying to rethink things. But sometimes I think, and I'm not saying just you, but I hear comments often online of like, oh, deconstructionists just want to sin more. They just hate God. <laughs> They're their own gods. I'm like, yeah. well, it's just way more complicated than that. And also they're rightfully angry from what happened to them because there's still no accountability in those spaces. So I, I, I said a lot, but what are your thoughts on some of that stuff? Oh, I, I get it. I'm with you on that, I think. And I understand exactly, I think, I don't mean to, you know, like speak for you, but I, I think I <laughs> How understand <dare> you? <laughs> what you mean about certain passages of the book. And there's a couple things I would say about that. One is that, um, this is definitely not you because one, you're not mean. And two, uh, you read the book so, because there has been a vocal critique of the book that, you know, and I, I don't know. Most people that buy the book and read it aren't going to say anything online one way or the other. Most of what people say to me is very, very nice. So I don't mean to be like, no one's saying anything nice to me, <laughs> but a, a tiny minority of them are pretty upset. And because, you know, I'm, one, too sensitive, and three or, or two, I think this is just kind of uh, the way a lot of creative people work is like, I'll get a hundred nice letters and then one <laughs> angry tweet. Totally. It's not totally. even a letter, it's just a tweet. And I'm like, oh man. They that ruined. Hurts. Totally. <laughs> yeah, that hurts my feelings. Nobody likes my book. <laughs> so and, cool. and then they'll even say they didn't read it. So it's like... <laughs> <laughs> that is honestly so accurate, but go on. I'm listening. Yes. So this is, that's not you at all. You're, you're entering into a thoughtful conversation about what's in the book. And so I, I one really, really respect it. And I, I, I get what you're saying. The thing, what I would say to that is one, the assumption some people make about the book, probably because of its title. And again, I chose to do that. So <laughs> it worked on you though. It worked <laughs> it on you. Um, they assume that I will be that guy. In fact, I don't here I'm going to I'm going to bring this guy into it cuz I don't know him personally and so I don't have any animosity toward him but people keep bringing up the skillet guy to me. Oh, John Cooper? <laughs> yeah, John oh. Cooper. <laughs> now, yeah. I don't know personally what in the world uh, the skillet guy is saying about anything and that's not because I'm too cool. I just I honestly don't know. Yeah. But people kept being like, "Oh, throwing this guy. He's he's like this guy." And I, I had to Google and I was like, "The skillet guy? How am I like the skillet guy?" I guess that he's been or the caricature of him that's coming back to me. I don't know if it's accurate. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Is the guy you're describing that's just like, "Oh, deconstructionists just want to sin more. They're stupid. They don't know how to read the Bible, that kind of thing." And so people are accusing me of being like, "You don't know what it's like." You don't know how painful it is. You're mm. so, um, you're, you're reductive and you're patronizing. And I'm like, the book is the story of my deconstruction. Yes. And and it, it is a very raw, vulnerable, and very painful chronicle 
of my deconstruction. So I can relate, I think, more than they assume yep. to the very painful and long-term. I mean, and I have people who are trying to out-deconstruction me online. They're like, yeah, but I did it longer. So I'm more qualified to comment on your bit. And I was like, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to measure <laughs> deconstruction with you. I'm just saying, I'm just right. saying I have a story too. Maybe we're more alike than we think we are. Right. And um, so I, I get it. And part of what I'm trying to do, if you can get past the title is to bring really on page one from the first couple of lines of the book is to disarm uh, the reader and say like, Oh, never mind. I, th- I kind of thought it was going to be one thing. It seems like it's going to be another. And then eventually you will get to some pretty um, biting commentary on certain aspects of what I describe as the deconstruction movement, just as you'll get a lot of biting commentary on evangelical fundamentalism. Yeah. And, and the reason I do that is one, to be balanced. And the, and the other reason is just as a writer, aesthetically, I think satire is really interesting and a, a really fun way to make a point. All, most of my novels are at least semi-satirical um, and the novelists that have most influenced me are satirical. So case in point, there's a passage in the book that the publishers <laughs> were like, this might be too much. And it's called The Musicians Are Revolting. And it's kind of this yes, like, yes. <laughs> it's this about. like ridiculous fictional short story um, that compares what I would describe as unthinking deconstructionism, right. which is not all deconstructionism. And the, <laughs> I think that I can say that because I'm arguing as someone who I hope has done uh, some uh, some kind of thinking de- deconstructionism, but I'm caricaturizing a certain group or a certain mentality. I'll just say, you know, there are no names and it's fictional and right. it's so over the top and so ridiculous that I thought it was very funny. And in a certain sense, I'm lampooning myself because at that point in the narrative, this is where I was at in the deconstruction journey. So I'm, I'm putting myself into that same conversation and say, if, if I had written that book when I was, uh, I don't know, 22 or 20 freaking years ago, if I had written this book, when I was years into a very sincere, I think thoughtful, I was reading the Bible, studying theology, um, you know, like I was digging really, really deep. I thought uh, I would have written the book that is then satired by that short story, the musicians are revolting. So I think that there's a certain amount of like, I I think it's fun to make fun of myself and to poke, you know, like the, and the, and again, this is something that I've done all throughout my <clears throat> creative career, if you want to call it, sure, obviously it's yeah. a very tiny career, <laughs> but um, you know, a lot of showbreds more quote unquote offensive lyrics are satirical. They're like, mm. uh, they make fun or they, they're hyperbolic. They exaggerate a situation to make a point or the more offensive passages or alienating passages in my fiction are like hyper, hyper violent. And people say, how can you, such a staunch pacifist, write these grotesque novels? I'm like, because I hate violence. Mm. So I satirize violence, you know? Yeah. So I get it. And, you know, the, the conclusion to all that for me personally is that I approach fiction, I approach nonfiction, I approach music and everything that I make creatively, assuming that what I make is not necessarily for everyone. And by that, I don't mean like, I don't care if it offends you. I just mean that like, all I have is my own voice and my aesthetic and my approach. And I think that, you know, there have been certain people who are provoked by those passages, but can also have fun with it. They're like, yeah, I get it. That made me mad, but 
it was it was also kind of funny. It's almost like a Saturday Night Live making fun of progressivism. Saturday Night Live is so overtly progressive, but even they can kind of like parody themselves to a certain mm. extent. Um, so I know that that's not the most satisfying answer. I just I kind of th- think that that's it can be funny sometimes. I also think that. Um, it's consistent with the aesthetic voice of the book to lampoon conservative fundamentalism, lampoon progressive fundamentalism, and then hopefully balance that out with my own vulnerability and say like, and this is where I'm at in the middle of all that chaos, if that makes any sense. I mean, for sure. One of the, I think, you know, you do share a lot about your your own thoughts and your journey. Um, And, you know, like you said earlier, you know, how you were close to not being here anymore on earth and just, you know, losing your dad and wrestling through evil and God's providence. And so I think that that weaving your own story in between the book really does humanize the book, right? Um, and, it, you know, that story of the, the, music, the music story makes sense now that you said that, but I read it, I'm like, this is a horrible analogy. There's so many holes in it. I'm like, that's a hole, that's a hole, I'll bring that up, you know, but now that you say that, it makes a lot more sense. So I guess one of my, one of my last couple of questions here, and again, Josh, thanks for making time to, to talk to me, is... Do do you think that you mentioned a few times this idea of balance and you, know, you if you're going to critique one you want, you want to critique the other do you think that like they are both equally as harmful in their most extreme like do you think that that like you know far right right wing evangelicalism is is just as dangerous as whatever you have in your head of like far left progressive Christianity I'm just kind of curious Oh man that's a good question I, I- my wife hates when I answer questions like that. She's like, don't ever say it's a good question. It just sounds like you're buying time. It really is because I've, I've never been asked that before. I don't think that I've consciously thought through a question like that off the top of my head. Honestly. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know long-term. I don't have the immediate like no or yes, because I think that from where I sit and there are people whose stories will look much different. Um, from where I sit, I have seen what I would describe as very evil or anti-Christ or satanic expressions of both extremes. And again, right now we're working in the extremes, not the nuance and the balance and the complicated wrestling. Hmm. Um, and I've seen tremendous hurt done, uh, with disastrous ramifications for faith in Jesus, the church, uh, happiness in general, like the the well being of humanity, like human dignity, honestly done in both extremes. I don't know that I could say right off the top of my head like I've seen more of it over here than I've seen over there. If you would have asked me when I lived in Georgia, I would have answered without hesitation. I think the most evil is localized on the right. Hmm. Um, but. Again, I'm product of my environment and I haven't been I haven't even been back to Georgia in such a long time that the world I live in is just I honestly sometimes naively by my own admission forget that this other thing is out there in the world. It just does not exist in in any kind of vocal meaningful state in the Portland metro area, you know what yeah. I mean? Unless right, totally. it is to absolutely demolish it, you know, in every way, shape, or form. Well, I, I I did think about that because I talked to a few people in your location geographically, pastors and stuff, and they have the same kind of vibe towards the term deconstruction. And I do think that there is um, maybe like a specific expression happening in that area that really shapes a lot of like how it's seen more broadly. Because, and I, I also was thinking too, as you were talking, I'm kind of talking out loud with you on this, is like, I even struggle with 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 the idea of like, 
evil in general, especially again, after listening to the Bible project, this idea of chaos and, you know, really the, the eating from the tree of good and bad is what Tim Mackey would say. It just kind of like, it, it has shifted for me and I'm still wrestling through how, how, like what we're actually talking about here. But, you know, this idea that like, um, you know, one, one type of group is evil and demonic and one type isn't, I think also sets up for like us up for like, like this othering of the other and makes us feel morally superior. Like somehow we never had the capacity to commit any kind of evil, but this other group does. Right. And I, I think that, like for example, today, as of this recording, it's the it's February seventh, right? This Sam Smith thing. I'm sure you hopefully you've heard it. Maybe you've heard about it. You know, this Grammy performance happens by this uh, person named Sam Smith. He, it's it's all in red. Uh, they're wearing red latex. They had devil horns on them. And right now, as we speak, there are right wing media pundits who have entire podcasts devoted to what is called the satanic worship service that happened at the Grammys. <laughs> I'm like, okay, and, you know, for a group that came that claims to be biblical, like it's a really bad position to think that's actually what what satanic is in the Bible, right? But so so I I, I see this jump often of like that's demonic, that's satanic. You know, we have to defeat and you know our for, the forces of evil. And and sometimes I hear people talk about that, and I'm like, no, you're only one degree off from like violence towards other humans. Humans. You're only one degree off of thinking because demons infiltrate whatever groomers or the left. You're you're really close to dehumanizing, and dehumanization always puts us on the path to violence. Like always, and always we can read the history books. We know how it ends. And so I, I think about that too. Like even this idea of satanic or evil, I I think I'm I'm just very hesitant to use those labels because of what they mean in our current cultural climate. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. I get it. I, I can relate. And again, there was a time in my um, discipleship to Jesus where out of my upbringing in Georgia, I was so exhausted by the language around satanic and Satanism. And, you know, like, and again, I was somebody who gravitated toward punk rock and, and, was like a goth teenager, you know? So I got a lot of, oh, this is satanic, that's satanic. And I was like, right. I don't think we know what, they, it was like the princess bride. I don't think you, you keep using <laughs> that word. I don't think you know what it means. <laughs> right, um, right. And, and so my, the trajectory of my theological journey was like, man, I don't want to do the satanic panic. I don't want to do the devils behind every bush. And especially the demonizing of, because of my affinity for the arts, of art and creativity. And, you know, my, before I wrote the deconstruction book, I wrote an, an entire book on a theology of offensive art. And I have a whole chapter in the, in the book called, um, satanic in a good way. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's my it, clickbait headline for this. Satanic <laughs> in a good way with Josh Porter. <laughs> that book comes out next. And I use the, uh, the Dave Eggers film, the witch as kind of like a litmus test for how do you depict, uh, actual literal demonic activity in a way with sincerity and that's provocative and interesting and how, you know, the satanic temple endorsed the witch and how, what a funny, ridiculous pop culture moment this whole thing became. And, you yeah. know, then the conservatives who would have never known about this indie movie totally. were like, oh, this movie is, you know, the satanic temple. Like, that doesn't mean anything. That's like somebody with a Twitter <laughs> account, you know. Um I so I'm with you on all that. I think that, uh, honestly, like uh, a lot like you, Tim, you know, uh, Tim Mackey is a friend of mine. He was, he was one of my professors in seminary, and uh, and yeah, like like you, the Bible Project has been quintessential, and his thinking and theology have been quintessential in developing my own uh, theology of the scriptures and what I understand to be true about the Bible. And I think that because of where I am, I've become 
comfortable again. And some of that is honestly naivete towards a certain dimension of popular culture. Like, you know, I saw stuff from the Grammys and I'm aware of that musician and everything, but like, I don't I know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have read a headline that would have described that to me. Mine are like, oh, this new, you know, indie punk band has this thing, blah, blah, blah. And not because I'm cool. It's because I'm trying to stay relevant as a 40-year-old dad. You know what I'm saying? I feel that. Um, I feel that, my friend. <laughs> I'm like, I got. I can't keep listening to the same stuff. I got to find new stuff and be cool. It can't be Emery, Under Oath, just <laughs> the Hero, Rinse and Repeat. I need other options here. You know? <laughs> right. So I just mean that like a certain stuff comes back to me and and I honestly, just like you, roll my eyes. Oh my God. Like, and I'm not even saying like that there's not anything to discuss morally about you know, art or music sure, or performance yeah. per se, but I'm as allergic to that stuff as you are. I think that for me, having an operating, because I, you know, you've read the book. I have this uh, high view of um, what I would d- describe as like the spiritual realm or spiritual activity and the scriptural idea of. You know, the Bible Project, they have the, we could really just do a commercial for the Bible Project. They have, <laughs> Which, by the way, Tim Mackey, if you're listening, come on the show. I've been asking you for months, okay? Please talk to me. <laughs> um, they did an entire series on the biblical concept of yes. spiritual beings. And I had just finished a series in my church uh, uh, around the same topic. And then I watched these videos. I'm like, man, what the heck? This was better than my entire sermon series. Yeah, exactly. This jerk. Um, so uh, I think uh, that, like, for me, when I used, terms like satanic i'm just so far removed from mm. that that georgian kind of like oh the sam smith performance is satanic or whatever yeah. you know and i'm more into like i don't have any issue saying you know i used that language to go back to something we discussed earlier when i talked about the demonizing of refugees and you know like i i described it as satanic meaning like of the satan like not of of god <laughs> not of yahweh you know right, right. and not of the will of god not not uh in keeping with the character and values of god it is of to to use jesus language the evil one you know what i mean yep and uh and i just like you have been and still am so averse to the demonizing of people and, you know, like the, in the whole, like, oh, we hate their guts and they're inherently corrupt. Or when I talk about which side is quote unquote more evil, I'm talking about which, which side has perpetuated more evil or done more evil or, or which side has been victimized by more evil, not necessarily like, oh, they are evil. I, I don't think that I, even on my worst day, I don't really rush to that kind of language personally. Yeah. Um, but that said, I think we do have, have, as people who are allergic to that language, have to wrestle with, you know, Jesus' really stark language about things like light and darkness, about sheep and goats, about, you know, like um, those who do the will of saying, you belong to your father, yeah. the devil, who has been a murderer since the beginning. And yeah, you can nuance and be like, well, he's speaking to religious authority in those contexts. Yes, of course, but it still stands that there's there's pointed language from Jesus himself about the seriousness of those who operate in and um and willingly perpetuate evil and that's me you know that's that's myself as well there was there's this great anecdote in um 
uh, a book by AJ Swoboda. He wrote a book called After Doubt, which is like a, a, a nicer version of my book and a smarter <laughs> version of my book. You know, he's a professor <laughs> in Portland. And, uh, and his, the title of his book isn't making anybody mad. <laughs> well, and, I'm not buying it. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> so you should, it's a great book. And okay, in it, he, he, he remembers a certain, um, moment that occurred to him, uh, as a Portlander, you know, and it was after the 2016 election, everything comes full circle in our conversation where he saw a headline on a Portland newspaper and it said something to the effect of, we refuse to let evil into our city or no, no, we refuse to let hate into our city. And he remembered sitting back and thinking, huh? Okay. So the assumption is hate is something that's out there. It's not in here. And the other people are the ones doing it. We don't do that and we won't let it in. Now, obviously, he understood the context and what they meant to say. But the inference behind yes. it was that, like, I don't have any hate in me. That's something those other guys do. And he remembered feeling like, oh, geez, like, I, I am aware of my own capacity to be a hateful person. And the danger, I think, is in allowing ourselves to consider, become friendly with, or legitimize the idea that whatever the evil is, it's localized over there. Yeah. And our camp, our tribe has purged it. You yes. know, I I think of evil as a human condition, not a political condition or a cultural condition. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think it's evident that humans have the capacity to do great good or great harm. Right. And I yes. think that especially for folks who are listening who are more in our circles, you know, it's important that we recognize that one of our biggest critiques of the evangelical culture we come from is their lack of the ability to self-reflect and repent for the harm or complicity that they are blatantly complicit in, whether it's towards the queer community or towards whatever it is. Um, and if we then take on that same posture, that somehow, oh, well, they need to repent, but not me. I, I would never do something to harm someone in the queer community, or I would never do something to harm someone else, right? Then all of a sudden we end up without even realizing it, repeating the cycle that we're trying so hard to get away from. And I think that that personal accountability, self-reflection, the willingness to acknowledge when you've committed harm uh, is actually a gift. I mean, repentance is actually a gift. Imagine a world where we couldn't repent like our harm was just permanent and it was it, there was no way to try and make it right that'd be a really dangerous world so i think that i agree with you on that josh like people whether i don't care where what where you exist or how you exist you're still human which means you have capacity to bring in a, in, in in a way heaven on earth or hell on earth right yes, we we, yes. we can we can be part of either one of those and so how do we do our best to choose uh, again, I'm going to speak more Bible project language, but how do we choose to be partners with God, seeking the wisdom of the divine to make wise decisions that bring about heaven on earth and not chaos, right? I mean, that's the whole point. And a lot of that, I, I think, starts with with us, frankly. And then also, when when the time is right, and we do this a lot, holding our own traditions accountable for the harm that they're currently causing. So I think Agreed. it's very much a both and, not an either or. No one is above doing something bad or something harmful, frankly. Yes, unfortunately. I've learned yeah, this about yeah. myself over That's the last true. few decades. Oh, yeah. No, I feel that. Well, listen, I mean, Josh, I feel like we could really go for a long, long time. Just one more question and then I'll let you go. And again, thanks for making time and going a little bit over. Um, So so where do you, I mean, if, if you had to pick a room in the Christian tradition, I mean, I see that John Mark Homer uh, wrote your foreword. I'm assuming you're friendly with him um, from what I've seen. He sees, he's he's a guy that I can't really figure out. I don't really know him. But I've just seen him online. I'm like, okay, where's this guy going to land? I see he's doing this 
course for free. I think that's so cool. So where do you tend to land in the Christian tradition? Like if you had to pick a room, where would you say, hey, right now, like I, this room is kind of like my, my theological home that I kind of view all the other rooms through? Oh man, I wish I had a more satisfying answer for you. You know, I, I, when I came back to the idea of committed Christianity post deconstruction and started to participate in a church in a meaningful way, um, it was a non denominational church that was sort of finding its own shape. And it was, and, and John Mark was the pastor there. So it was, um, informed by you know his theological journey, as uh, many churches with a voice like that in, in front of them are, and that was the honest. You know, you described earlier the idea of stepping out to level one and realizing, like, oh my god, I had no idea the tradition was so big. That was for me the beginnings of that experience. I had already begun to read outside of my upbringing, but it within a certain camp, you know, kind of like, I like this guy and he quotes this guy. And so you kind of stay over here in a certain room. Yeah. And now I'm like uh, learning from all sorts of different theologians and Bible scholars and teachers through the voice of this one guy. And I'm going, Hey, what, what about that dude? I thought he said this and he'd be like, well, yeah, he does. But this thing is helpful, you know, cause he's reading and learning from a, a, an array of different teachers, regardless of whether or not he agrees with every little theological position they've ever held. And so that kind of opened me up to, and then, you know, I did went and did seminary and, um, and, and all that. And you're, you're made to, even though seminary is, you're kind of at the mercy of the, the reading material, but that forced me to read stuff I wouldn't have read otherwise, quite frankly. And some of which I was just like, Oh God, this is so bad. But <laughs> You know, like I, I read from it and some of it I hated at the end and others I was like, well, I wanted to hate this, but I have to admit this is helpful or this is, I think, right. You know, that kind of thing. Where I'm at now is honestly, people come to me after, a, you know, our church gathers on Sunday. They're brand new. They're like, this is cool. What is it? You know, like, do you have a denomination? They're like, no, well, we're non-denominational, but that's not that novel. A million churches are non-denominational. They're like, are you more informed by this or that? Are you more of this expression of church? Are you this? And I'm like, well, when you put everything together and you start to be like, you know, I think that I, I describe myself in the book as like a part of the historic apostolic Christian tradition. Um because I think that I'm comfortable with things like the Apostles' Creed. I'm comfortable with the Nicene Creed. And then I have theological positions that would probably put me in this camp. Oh, obviously he's not a Calvinist or he's Anabaptist in his political theology or he's charismatic in his theology about the Holy Spirit. But when they all come together in a melting pot, it it can make one feel a little bit theologically homeless because it's like, where are the Anabaptist, charismatic, uh, you know, like non-Calvinist, oh, blah, 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 <laughs> and on down the list, Right. which makes me yeah. just comfortable saying like, I feel like I'm part of the Orthodox Christian tradition. I feel like, you know, the way you described it, level one, and the way I put it in the book is almost like a vast countryside. And yeah, there are camps there, but when it works in a healthy way, and, and granted, we both acknowledge it doesn't always work like this, but yeah. on its best day, and this does happen, um, the camp, people in the camps can have a home there, they can learn there, they can be, you know, come of, come of age there, if you like, and then they can go and learn from other teachers and thinkers. I'm not Catholic personally, but I read Catholic theologians almost every week. You know, my job um, is to read and study the Bible 40 hours a week and then teach on it for 45 minutes at the end of the week. So I'm reading from mystics. I'm reading from Catholic theologians, even though I'm not Catholic. I read from 
Calvinists, even though I'm not Calvinist, I read from Reformed thinkers and I read different takes on the scriptures by default so that I'm not just getting one voice all the time in the same place. And what I've found over time is that I still feel comfortably at home as part of that historic apostolic Christian tradition. Um, even if there are some people who are like, oh, this thing you think is wacky or that thing you think is wacky. Uh, you know, I, I realize that's not the, I keep, I say this all, it's not the most satisfying answer, but it's not, um, it's not as black and white to me. You know, maybe some people would say, oh, he's kind of mystic and other people would be like, no, he's not. One of the funniest things about the book to me is that, uh, you know, I got one guy, that said, like, this is just freaking progressive hogwash. It's the same old boring progressivism we get from everybody. And then right underneath it, there was a dude being like, this guy's a conservative fundamentalist, you know? Um, so, I, you know, and that's fine. That doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to faithfully live out the teachings of Jesus upon what I believe is the inspired authority of the scriptures in the Christian community with other people trying to do the same thing, with all warts and all. Well, yeah, no, I feel that. I think, I mean, listen, I, I know it's a long answer, but I think I think it's an honest answer. And we certainly can make room for honesty because like you, we are realizing just how big and complicated this, play. I mean, just last night we had, we, we do a theology 101 group where, where we actually like bring in a legitimate scholar to teach on something. So I've had people like Trip Four, who's a process theologian come in. And then I had someone came in named Gabriel Gordon, who just walked us through like the Eastern kind of church tradition, high level overview in 40 minutes. And you're just like, oh my God, like I never, you know, they don't from original sin nearly the same way that like so many in the Western church do. I never even knew that. So it's just another one of those moments where you're like, wow, again, the Christian tradition is just so big. So Josh, listen, I really appreciate you making time to come on. The book, friends, is Death to Deconstruction, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. I will tell you now, no matter who you are listening to this podcast, you will find parts where you go, hell yeah, Josh. And then you'll go, Josh, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I love that review. That's my favorite review so far. There you go. Tim Whitaker, the new evangelical. So um, Josh, can people, I mean, are you on social media a whole lot? Like, do you have a, a personality on there or through the book? I'm back. Yeah, I wasn't on for years and I came back to let people know I wrote a book. You can find all of it at joshuasporter.com, but you know, I'm a I'm bumbling around over there like an old man hit like a, a chimpanzee just hitting keyboards being like, "Is this how you social media?" I'm telling you, I would not be on TikTok and maybe even Instagram at the same capacity I, I am if it wasn't for the fact that I run a nonprofit that's online and I have to make content as part of my actual job. It's a broken because world, I'm man, and we live in it. You See, know? there is compromise. You know, I do, do I like it? No. Do I do it? Well, I kind of have to, you know? So, well, Josh, again, keep in touch. Uh, thanks for all of your work. I'm sure we'll talk again and, and thanks for making the time. Yeah, dude, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. Stigmas around mental health were designed to hold us down, but we don't have to let them. If you're struggling, text or call 988 to connect with a trained crisis counselor who won't judge, just listen. 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Hope has a new number.